0: No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
2: Hello Friday. It is the end of the week.
0: I think it's time to party.
2: Oh! Thank God it's Friday. It's Friday
0: night. <laughs> want to be, wanna be your Friday night. Yes. I don't care about you. It's Friday. I'm in not... love.
3: No. It's Friday. And it's Ross Kaminsky on KOA, 8.50 a.m., one FM, and on iHeartRadio. Everybody's working for the weekend. Everybody wants a new
1: romance. All right, good morning. It's Friday. I'm Ross. Oh, my gosh. That was a very, very fast-moving week. I do not know where that week went. But uh, here we are. It is great to talk with you this morning, hopefully every morning. If I get you for 10 minutes or I get you for three hours, I'm grateful for your time, so thanks for being here. I'm running around like a proverbial chicken with his head cut off this morning, going a little crazy, trying to set up my own little laptop here because my first guest on the show in the next segment is going to be Mark Graney, who I think is the best thriller writer today working today. I, I think... There's an A-list for sure with Mark and and Jack Carr and Brad Thor and Brad Taylor, some of these guys. But gosh, for my money, it's just impossible to beat the Gray Man series from Mark Graney. And he's got a new one out, and we're going to talk with him in a bit. We got a guy named Kaminsky on the show coming up a little bit later. Not me, a different guy named Kaminsky. And I'll tell you more about that in a bit. I'll I'll tell you more about the guests in a little while. I want to jump in with something here that just—I mentioned this when— Marty and Gina and I were were talking briefly there. There's been a lot of stuff coming out in the last, I'll call it uh, 16 hours or so, about the defamation lawsuit where Dominion Voting Systems is suing Fox News for $1.6 billion. And in particular... What seemed to came out yesterday was the results of a a bunch of uh, depositions of various Fox employees, and also discovery by Dominion of emails and texts and other communications against Fox News about and in between Fox News employees. Now, before I dig into some of the nuts and bolts of this story. I I just want to set this up in a maybe a slightly different way from what you might expect because the headlines are all about, you know, here a headline from from Washington Post, Fox News hosts and executives privately doubted 2020 conspiracy claims shared on the air. So the headlines are like that. But I want to frame this in a particular way. I want to talk about this as a story about journalism. And for the record, I don't really consider myself a journalist. I'm on the fringes of journalism. I sometimes bring you news stories. More of my job is about news analysis than doing my own reporting. Again, sometimes I will, you know, quote unquote, make news or break a story or something like that, but that's rare. And it's not really my job. And usually that kind of thing happens when there's a person out there who has something they want to be made known to the public and they trust me to get the story right. Or if it's somebody who perhaps feels that they have a risk, if their name becomes known related to the story, they trust me to get the story out there after doing my own homework as best I can to verify stuff. I don't generally take one person's claim of something to be fact. But they know that I will, if I if I believe the story to be important and true, they can trust me to get the story out there without tying their name to it. That kind of thing. But it's rare. You know, that's a few times a year. Normally, I sit down here and I try to bring you news that you might not have seen, but I'm not really the reporter. So what do you want? And I mean you. What do you want from me as a representative of a talk radio host what what do you want what do you expect to me the story that we're going to get into here momentarily is a story about journalists some journalists doing what journalists are supposed to do and other journalists feel you know people who are more in my line of work and not exactly what I would call journalists but more like opinion people utterly failing And betraying whatever principles, well, maybe they never held them. But betraying principles that I hold in a way that I would never betray. Because these people had a view of you. And in this sense, I mean you in the the bigger picture of you. You, the cable news viewing and Fox News viewing public. And I think that the view of you is very disappointing by some of these people at Fox. Not all, some. Mostly the three major primetime opinion hosts. And I'll get into all that in a second. Not really looking to make this story about. Me, but I just want to say one thing that is very important to me. And I think that what I'm going to say applies equally to Mandy. Mandy and I being the two people on KOA whose jobs are primarily to express opinions about current events. We've got lots of people who do lots of talking on KOA, but The other folks on KOA who talk about things tend to either be straight news reporters or sports talk as far as the live hosts. And the sports talk folks can get into current events and they can give their opinions, but it's not their primary job description like it is for me and Mandy. So I'm just going to talk about me. I will extend to Mandy. And if she's listening, she can disagree with me later. But I don't think she will. I will never come on to this radio show ever, and I never have, I will never come on to the radio and say something that I do not believe just because I believe that listeners want to hear it. Even if I believed that 90% of my listeners wanted to hear a thing, if I believed it wasn't true, I wouldn't say it the closest I might get, and this kind of thing does come up a lot and is perfectly valid, I might say some other people are saying X and Y, but I don't believe that. And if lots of other people are saying X and Y, then it makes it worth mentioning in the context of current events. If lots of people are saying maybe the 2020 election was stolen, then I might say on the air, well, some people are claiming this, but I don't believe it, which is a very different thing from the perspective of being a quote unquote journalist or even an opinion host. From saying, I think the election was stolen. If in the example I'm giving you, I don't actually think the election was stolen, but I think that 90 percent of my listeners want me to say that because it makes them feel better because they believe it or something like that. So this story that I want to share with you right now is about you. It's about you. It's about What journalism means, including opinion journalism. And I find this story so distressing and so unfortunate and so unnecessary. But it's really important to talk about. I don't think Fox News is covering it, at least not yet. And I wouldn't if I were Fox News either because they're still embroiled in a lawsuit. So if I were Fox, I would just stay quiet about it. But multiple outlets have looked at the documents that have come out just yesterday from these various depositions, stuff that Dominion Voting Systems has acquired through the discovery process about in-house communications among Fox News people. I'm going to share one with you. This is from NPR.org is the website. In the days and weeks after the 2020 elections, the Fox News channel repeatedly broadcast false claims that then-President Donald Trump had been cheated of victory. Now, I want to make something very clear here, because I was watching Fox News. I watched all these channels, but I watched Fox News most of the channels. And during that time, it is true that false claims of stolen election were repeatedly broadcast on Fox, but... Almost hundred percent of it, at least on weekdays, almost hundred percent of it was during three shows: Laura Ingram, Sean Hannity, and Tucker Carlson. On the weekend, you also had Janine Pirro say some ridiculous stuff. But on the big, you know, on the the big days, the big shows, Ingram, Hannity, and Tucker, and they weren't. They were bad. They weren't terrible. There were other people in other places who were saying more and doing more along these lines of stolen election. But these guys, gal, guys, did too much. And I knew it at the time. Now, I was never a Laura Ingram fan, so I didn't watch her much to begin with. Long ago, I kind of liked Sean Hannity, but during the Trump years, he became very, very boring and predictable, and he said the same thing every night, so I didn't watch him very much, even though I like him as a person. Met him. I only met him once. And I used to have an immense amount of respect for Tucker Carlson. But Tucker Carlson went off the deep end, losing whatever principles he had in a never ending quest for ratings. Which, by the way, is winning the ratings war. So if that's his goal, if he's willing to sell his soul to get ratings, he's won. Is it worth it? That's up to him. For, to judge. that's not for me to judge. all I all I can judge is I wouldn't do it. And it might cost me 50 million dollars, not that I'm ever going to be in Tucker Carlson's position. I'm not saying I'm gonna have that opportunity, but I wouldn't do it. I couldn't do it. I could not go on the air right behind this microphone or any other or any camera and say something I don't believe and come across as credible even if I were trying to do it. Okay, so off the air, The network's stars, producers, and executives expressed contempt for those same conspiracies, calling them, quote, mind-blowingly nuts, totally off the rails, and completely BS, often in far-earthier terms. The network's top primetime stars, Tucker, Laura, and Sean, texted contemptuously of the claims. In other words, of the claims that the election was stolen in group chats, but also denounced colleagues pointing that out publicly on or on television. Ingram called Trump campaign attorney Sidney Powell a bit nuts. Carlson, who famously demanded evidence from her on the air, privately used a vulgar epithet for women to describe her. A top network programming executive wrote privately that he did not believe the shows of Carlson, Hannity, and Janine Pirro were credible sources of news. So somebody inside Fox wrote that he didn't believe that Tucker, Hannity, and Janine Pirro were credible sources of news. Even so, top executives strategized about how to make it up to their viewers among Trump's strongest supporters after Fox News' election night team correctly called the pivotal state of Arizona for Democratic nominee Joe Biden before other networks did. A sense of of desperation pervades the private notes from Fox's top stars, reflecting an obsession with collapsing ratings. Bill Salmon, S-A-M-M-O-N, who was the managing editor in the D.C. Bureau of Fox, wrote on December 2nd, 2020, it's remarkable how weak ratings make good journalists do bad things. This guy, Bill Salmon, was on the correct side of this throughout. He ended up getting kicked out because he was on the correct side of it. Hannity texted Carlson and Ingram that Fox's Arizona call, quote, destroyed a brand that took 25 years to build and the damage is incalculable. Fox News host Neil Cavuto, one of my very favorite people on television, was attacked by colleagues at Fox for pulling his show away from a presentation by then-White House spokeswoman Kayleigh McEnany in which she made unfounded claims of fraud once more. McEnany is now a host on Fox News. These revelations and far more surfaced in legal filings made public late yesterday afternoon as part of Dominion Voting Systems' blockbuster $1.6 billion defamation lawsuit against Fox and its parent company. So, I want to talk about you for a second. Big picture, you. You and I, I. I am included in you in this context. We are consumers of media. We like to be well informed. Anybody who's listening to a show like this likes to be well informed, as well as hopefully entertained, but you want to be well informed. That's why you're here. Me too. Me too. So what exactly does it say about Fox News' view of their own hosts? I'm sorry, not of their hosts, but by their hosts, of their audience, that they were so certain that their audience would abandon them for correctly... ...saying that Joe Biden won Arizona. Isn't it weird? Isn't it weird that there's a segment of the population... ...that apparently really exists... ...that is willing to abandon a television network that they have loved for years because somebody at that network told the truth 20 minutes before other people did on other networks. Is that not nuts? What does that say? Again, what does that say about what they think of you? And what does it say about TV viewers overall and how and how TV viewing, news viewing, and I have to put news in air quotes here, has changed over the years. Let me give you a sense of how deep the rot went with Tucker Carlson. Fox News reporter Jackie Heinrich, who is now one of their White House reporters, an excellent reporter, gets to ask, Questions of the press secretary and sometimes the president from time to time, sent out a tweet where she fact checked a treat a tweet from Trump where Trump was lying about Dominion. And Jackie Heinrich basically said, Here's Trump's tweet, and there's no evidence for the stuff that Trump is saying about Dominion voting systems. Trump, Trump's tweet is is Wrong, Or at least there's no basis for it. And this is a reasonable thing for a reporter to do. She's reporting on what the then president of the United States was saying. And she's saying as a reporter, all right, he just said this and it's wrong. Tucker Carlson then sent a message over to Sean Hannity suggesting that that reporter, Jackie Heinrich, should be fired. For just doing that, for fact-checking, correctly, fact-checking Donald Trump. Now, I have no idea if Fox is going to win this. I have no idea if, you know, First Amendment protections and all that are going to save them. Fox, unfortunately, Fox deserves to lose. Because... Laura, Hannity, and Tucker Carlson all intentionally either spread lies or allowed them to be spread on their shows. Lou Dobbs did the same. He got fired. Janine Pirro was still around. She did the same very egregiously. And I just want to tell you, regardless of what you think about the 2020 election, you know what I think, but regardless of what you think, I hope two things. I hope that you know that I will never come on this show and tell you something I don't believe just because I think you want to hear it. And I hope that not just with my show, but with all of your media consumption, that you will not abandon hosts and reporters who you know are doing their very best to bring you stories that are true and important just because the story that's true and important that day doesn't line up with what you want to be true. You would not let your kids be raised that way. You would not let your kids behave that way and live in a life where you only are told things you want to hear. Let's you and I together also agree not to live our lives that way. We'll be back with Mark Graney.
0: Kurt offers securities through Cambridge Investment Research, Inc., member FINRA, SIPC, and advisory services through Cambridge Investment Research Advisors, Inc., a registered investment advisor. Cambridge and Centennial Capital Partners are not affiliated. All right, it's
1: Friday. It's time for the fun fact or quote with Cameron Cam Beer of Centennial Capital Partners. Hi, Cam.
4: Ross, good morning to you. Happy Friday. And yes, fun fact Friday, guys. And we all know the old saying, my eyes were bigger than my stomach, right? Maybe you felt like you were starving one evening, you're at a nice steakhouse for dinner, and you decided to get the 20 ounce ribeye when you really should have had the 10. Well, it looks like that's really starting to take a toll on Americans, because according to Axios, America weighs more than 100 billion pounds or forty percent of its food each year and the average american family spends nearly nineteen hundred a year on food they don't eat, and that's a lot of money especially when you consider that nearly six and ten americans don't have enough savings to cover a five hundred to a thousand dollar unexpected expense and it looked, there's a lot of reasons this could be. You know, it could be due to large portion sizes on the store shelves that lead us to buy more than we need, the inconsistent policies around date labels that may cause us to toss out food that's still safe and good to eat and Sometimes the food we buy just gets lost in the pantry or fridge, or in some cases that we know the food we bought just never sounds good to eat. So this weekend when we're knocking out grocery shopping, let's really get on the same page with our stomachs and our wallets as well. It can make a big impact in the long run.
1: I love it. Way to way to tie together a bunch of different important aspects of, of people's lives. Yeah, we yeah. we waste a lot. We also eat too much. I mean, we're a very fat country. Not here in Colorado, though. Uh, Colorado, we're the skinniest state, but... Um, Absolutely. Those are great points. And, And folks, I think you know that often when I talk about Cameron Cambier and his dad, Kurt Cambier, and Centennial Capital Partners and them helping you as your financial planner, a lot of what I talk about is their values, Cam's values, Kurt's values, which I think are incredibly important and I think most of my listeners share. And it's just one reason I want you to get in touch, have a meeting, see if it makes sense to work together. K-U-R-T-C-A-M-B-I-E-R.com to get started or by phone. Cam, what's that number?
4: That's 303-271-1067. Give us a call. We'd love to help, and everybody have a safe and warm weekend.
1: Thanks so much, Cam.
0: Have a great weekend yourself and a great holiday. No purchase necessary. we're prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This is where projects come to life. Our showrooms are designed to inspire with the latest products from top brands curated in an inviting hands-on environment and a team of industry experts to support your project. We'll be there to make sure everything goes as planned from product selection to delivery coordination at Ferguson Bath Kitchen and Lighting Gallery. Your project is our priority see the latest designs from your favorite brands, including Brizo at your local Ferguson showroom.
1: Thanks so much for spending a little time with me here on KOA. Hope you're having a wonderful Friday. It's gonna be better right now, um, especially if you like reading, especially if you like thriller novels, because showing up right on time. <laughs> Mark Mark Grady joins us back again here on KOA. I've got his book in my in my hand. Uh, it's called Burner, the newest the newest Gray Man novel. And uh, Mark, I I mentioned before you were here, so you don't think it's just because you're here that. Uh, I think you're the best thriller writer working these days. And I got a lot of friends, you know, Jack Carr is a friend of mine and Brad, both Brads. and But I just, the Gray Man novels are in a league of their own. So thanks for entertaining me so well. It's just fantastic. And I love the new book.
5: Well, my pleasure, Ross. I really appreciate you reading it and I'm, I'm glad you're enjoying it.
1: I well, it's it's not so much that you have to thank me for reading it. You need to apologize to me for making me stay up late a few nights in a row for not being able to put it down. Um, so I think I I think I remember that room from last time. I think I asked you what that painting is over your right shoulder the last time. But remind me.
5: Yeah, it's a uh, it's custom. My my wife is a painter. She didn't paint this, but uh, an, an artist in Memphis. She had a commission for the room. My wife did the whole color scheme and everything in here. I just, I just sit here. I just work here. (laughs) She put everything together. I love it though. It's it's a nice space to work in.
1: Tell her, tell her well done. All right. So let's talk a little bit about the, the plot of your new book burner. Just give, give folks kind of a, a brief thumbnail of what it's about. And then I want to ask you how you came to this as your plot idea.
5: Yeah, so this is the 12th book in the series, and it's about a CIA officer named Court Gentry, former CIA officer. And in this book, he picks up a job doing a contract job for the agency because some some important files have been stolen from a bank in Switzerland that prove uh, Russian foreign intelligence is bribing officials in the West uh, over a peace treaty idea they have about the war in Ukraine. And court is trying to stop that from happening. The CIA is trying to get hold of the information. And court's lover, uh, Zoya Zakharova, former Russian intelligence officer, is on the other side of, of the whole scheme at the beginning.
1: I'm curious because it seems to me many folks who do what you do write about a book a year, and maybe it takes a little bit less than a year to write a book like this. You know, some folks a little faster, some folks a little slower. I'm curious whether you started writing this book before or after the Ukraine war began.
5: I started it very briefly before the war started and it and it was different then it it involved Russian intelligence and Russian uh, influence in the West. but it obviously once the war happened in Ukraine, I became very passionate about it. I, all I did was read everything that was going on, follow Russian um intelligence operations that as they as they've been exposed. And so I I tweaked and fine-tuned the novel. It was really tough last spring and summer to try and figure out where we would be mm-hmm. in February of 2023, you know, six, nine months before. Uh but I think the the book, there's certainly nothing in the book that either hasn't happened or or couldn't still happen.
1: Right. No, I, I think that's true. And I I like Well, I don't like, but I like that you thought of the concept that much of the Western world could look to do a treaty with Russia just to get trade normalized again. Basically do a treaty with Russia and more or less forgive what they did in Ukraine just so everybody could start making a few dollars. And I I don't think it's going to go that way, but... I also can't rule it out. And I, I like that line of thinking in your book.
5: Yeah. So that's exactly, I, I, have been pleasantly surprised, like pleasantly astonished, um, how much the, the West has supported Ukraine in this, but there are those voices in the government and those voices in the media and, and places like that, that are wanting us to, to sort of normalize things and end the war and, and, uh, it would be at the expense of Ukrainian territory and lives as it is in this, this book. If, if, if there was some sort of a treaty that just sort of held the status quo the way, the way that it was. So um, things aren't as dire as in, in the real life, in the real world. And I'm happy about that, but it's pretty close. In the book.
1: We're talking with Mark Graney about his new novel, the 12th in the gray man series. It's called burner. And for those who don't remember my prior conversations with Mark, we brought up at that time that, uh, he and I in, in college both studied political science but really for both of us it was foreign policy. I didn't study a lot of domestic politics. I, I studied a lot of foreign policy and I think that kind of understanding comes through um, very, very very well in your novels. Do you, do you feel like your having studied this stuff in your younger days benefits you as an author today?
5: Absolutely. So I didn't get published till I was 42 years old. So for about 20 years after I graduated college, um, I did other things and it, it didn't really involve what I learned in school, but it, it does now. And also, you know, I, I had a lot of interest. My father was, he, he was the uh, station manager at the NBC affiliate here in Memphis, where I live. So I grew up with the news and politics and things like that. It's always been very interesting to me. So um, you know, it took a while, but eventually I incorporated it in, into my day job.
1: One of the other aspects of the book is how cryptocurrency plays a role here. And, and obviously, crypto has been very much in the news in the past year or so. Um, tell us your thoughts about crypto broadly as they apply in this world of international affairs that makes its way into your book.
5: Yeah, it's just one way uh, that Russians can can launder money through the West. And there's a bank in Switzerland, a private bank in the novel that is basically funneling uh, Kremlin funds, whether it's Russian uh, foreign intelligence, Russian military intelligence um, or the FSB, which is Russian domestic intelligence. But they're involved in Ukraine. Uh, They're pushing money through this bank in Switzerland. And one of the means they use is cryptocurrency. And really, that's just a plot device because this uh, young man, Alex Valesky, is a Ukrainian, but he works as a cryptocurrency uh, manager at this Swiss bank, and he's the one that uh, gets hold of this information that that my hero, Court Gentry, has
1: to has to take. I got about time. I got time for one or one and a half more questions for you. There's a scene in the book on a train, and and this what this scene I. I'm trying to describe it. it. It reminds me of the intersection of what might be any sort of normal scene in a thriller movie, combined with John Wick, and and I I wonder how you that that train scene is one of the most action filled scenes I've ever read in any book, and I, that's different from writing a very cerebral thing about you know, what's the FSB doing with currency T- tell us what it's like trying right. to write a scene that is just action like that.
5: Well, it was really tough. I, once the book came out, I looked and it's an 80 page action scene, which is by far the biggest scene I've ever written, you know, an action scene. There's a lot of tension before the action starts, but it's a, it's a train a high speed train between uh, Milan and Geneva. I wrote the entire scene Turned the book in and then told myself, you've got to go and get on that train. And so I went to Europe and and did the train ride because I just didn't really, I wasn't very happy with with what I had. So once I was able to do it and see all the angles, you know, there's a lot of geometry. There's a lot of, you have to know details about, you know, police presence and and the tunnels that you go
1: through and things Mm -hmm. like
5: that. So I I literally physically had to do it myself and then rework the scene. And in my second draft, it was a lot better.
1: Wow. It, it is really something. It, it's one of those things that you can imagine a director trying to figure out how the hell am I going to do this in a movie? I mean, there's a, I don't want to, I don't want to give a spoiler. There's a, there's a way that court gentry shoots somebody that is just, I mean, it's awesome. I'm, I'm not going to say what it is because I want people to go read the book. <laughs> um, all right. I'll give you the last 17 seconds. What else you want us to know about Burner before everybody goes and buys it and reads it?
5: Well, I just hope people do give it a a chance and and see what they think. It's a standalone book. You don't have to read any of the other 11 books Mm -hmm. to to enjoy this book, but I hope people enjoy it.
1: I'm sure they will. Oh, last quick thing. So there was a Gray Man movie already. Is there any other thing in the works that will be on a screen somewhere?
5: Yeah, they're writing a second uh, Gray Man film right now with Ryan Gosling and the Russo brothers to direct it. They're also working on a spin-off with some other character from the story, but I don't really know that much about that. So we'll see what happens there.
1: Mark Graney again. I, I I think you're you're the best and Burner is a great highly entertaining book. Folks go buy Mark Graney's new Gray Man novel called Burner. Thanks for being here, Mark. Always good to talk to you. I appreciate it, Enjoyed it. Uh, okay. We'll be right back on KOA. Okay, round 2. Name
5: something
2: that's not boring.
1: morning happy friday i'm ross thanks for spending a little time with me i i don't like bringing you bad stories about colorado or about denver right i've i have loved this state and i still mostly love this state and and i'm not trying to bag on this state but not everything's going real well And until folks start realizing it and electing people who are going to do something different rather than continuing along with Einstein's definition of insanity, until that, things are going to get worse. And I don't want things to get worse. So when I bring you stories that are, you know, this isn't going very well here or there, don't think that I'm just bringing you negative stuff in a sort of if it bleeds, it leads context. I'm not that guy. I'm bringing you stuff because we need to know. We need to talk about it. We all need to be informed so that when we're voting, we make smarter choices. And I thought of it when I saw this story yesterday. This is at Fox News' website, but it's based on data. It's not an opinion story. And over across the United States of America... There were nine major cities. I don't know what the dividing line is for major. I'm sure it's a population number, and I don't know where they drew the line. But whoever drew the line drew the line. All right, so among what they call major cities, last year in the United States of America, there were nine that had record numbers of homicides, Because, remember, there were lots and lots of murders in America. Well, going back to the 80s, of course, crime was higher than it is now. 2021 was worse than 2022 in most places. And, but in America, murders in large cities did hit a 25-year high in 2021. You have to go back to the 90s to get numbers that high. And then they went down, except in nine major cities. And unfortunately, I need to tell you that Colorado was the only state that had two of those cities. Denver was not one of them. I'm not saying Denver murders didn't go up, but it didn't get to a record high in Denver. Record high numbers of murders in 2022 in Albuquerque, Aurora, Colorado... Colorado Springs, Colorado, rounding out the list, Little Rock, Milwaukee, Portland, Raleigh, San Antonio, Tacoma, Tacoma, Washington. The only state, we are the only state with two cities that got to record high murder, uh, record high numbers of murders. Now, as a data guy, and just to be clear that we're not engaging in data abuse, Some of the reason that you could be seeing record high numbers in these cities is that the population has gone up a lot, especially Colorado Springs. The population has gone up a lot, so you would expect more crime, including more murder. But still, for there only to be nine cities in the whole country that set new murder records last year, and two of them being here, I think that's something we should take note of. Again, I'm not bringing this to you just by way of complaining or saying the sky is falling or anything like that. I want to be at least a little bit constructive while I complain. While I complain. But let's be a little bit constructive as we head into the Denver mayor's election and then next year as we head into various other elections. Let's just keep all this in mind and do our very best to not vote for people who promise us what is essentially more of the same. When we come back, a guy named Kaminsky on a very important story.
2: With the Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.
0: This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just gonna circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright and start getting lucky.
2: Play for free at Luckylandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
0: Now, Ross Kaminsky. It just takes some time. On KOA, 850 AM 941 FM. And on iHeartRadio.
6: All
1: right, this time. A week later, but this time I know for sure
3: you didn't use the Friday opening on that one. So it, it, the the ten o'clock for some reason is not automatically inserted in, and as we are shuffling producers at mm. that time, it's it's I I forget as I'm you know getting a guest, loading the computers, get everything on and. Running. Oh, you mean you're
1: busy? Is that what you're saying?
3: It's an excuse, but yeah. yes.
1: All right, all right. Uh, Dragon producer Dragon just asked me if. My next guest is a relative of mine. And and my answer is not as far as I know, but if two people are both named Kaminsky, then we're probably related if you go back, you know, far enough in the family trees. But uh, I, I don't know how it has taken this long to get Gabe Kaminsky here on the Ross Kaminsky Show on KOA. Gabe is an investigative reporter for the Washington Examiner, and boy, did he break a big story that we're going to talk about in in a moment. But uh, Kaminsky, really good to have you here. Mr.
7: Kaminsky, thank you for having me. Mm. we got to get Frank Kaminsky on the show as well.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Is he with a Y? I'm trying to remember if he's got a Y on his name. It's a why. It's a why. All right. He's taller than we are, unless you're much taller than I think you are. So, uh, you broke a a super interesting story that you've written a a a bunch of stories about in a series, generally falling under the headline "Disinformation Inc." So, lay it out for us, would you?
7: Well, we tried to detail in our multi-part series is how uh, these these. Disinformation trackers are groups purporting to be tracking disinformation on the Internet. And we've unpacked how these organizations are compiling secret blacklists of conservative media outlets uh, and feeding those to advertising companies with the intent of shutting down and deplatforming those organizations. And so this is having a very, very outsized impact on how websites are gaining access to critical advertising dollars.
1: I don't think it would be a surprise to anybody to know that the left is trying to shut down the right and shut off avenues for conservatives to generate revenue and all that sort of thing. And and I should mention by way of full disclosure to listeners, one of the media outlets being targeted by the group that Gabe is writing about is the American Spectator, where for many years I wrote weekly Although since I got this job, I'm a little busy and I only write occasionally. But when I do write, I write for the American Spectator and they are they are on this list. What, what makes this story so galling is not just what the left is trying to do, but that apparently our government is funding them to do it. Can you elaborate on this?
7: That's right, Ross. Uh, so we found that the, the group we primarily focus on is an organization called the Global Disinformation Index, and the, the U.S. Department of State has, uh, between 2020 and 2021, granted uh, roughly $666,000 uh, to, uh, to Global Disinformation Index. Um, and so, you know, the grants have been earmarked for Global Disinformation Index foreign activities uh, developing risk ratings. But regardless, this has raised concerns among First Amendment lawyers and members of Congress that, in and of itself, taxpayer dollars have gone to a group that is trying to shut down uh, the free press. And in this case, that happens to be conservative media outlets like the Washington Examiner, the Daily Wire, uh, the Blaze, the American Spectator, Real Clear Politics, the list goes on.
1: By the way, particularly odd to include real te- real clear politics on that list. I know they have some opinion stuff and they have a couple of people who do their own things, but m- mostly they are a news aggregator and an aggregator of polling data. And and if anything shows just how dishonest the whole effort is, it's probably that. Although w- we knew it already. Can can you talk a little bit about how this group very specifically, how does this group try to hurt these conservative organizations that the leftists don't like?
7: Sure. So Global Disinformation Index, they, they they operate something called a dynamic exclusion list. And so each month, we learn they send this to advertising companies. And this dynamic exclusion list is basically what this group determines to be the biggest peddlers in, among websites of uh, of disinformation. And so these are you know, conservative websites that they uh, determine to be publishing inflammatory content. And so it gets to advertising companies and advertising companies then subscribe to that list and use that to determine where they're going to, you know, large advertising companies that represent places like Comcast, Walmart, major United States companies, there's third parties that place ads for them, and those are then abiding by this blacklist. And so, basically, it's resulting in major uh, websites, you know, not getting access to ad dollars. Uh, we actually learned that the Microsoft-owned Xander X A N D R, that's a big advertising group, subscribed previously to the Global Disinformation Index's blacklist. We actually obtained internal data from Microsoft or from a source close to Microsoft. Um, that documented how they were targeting conservative outlets. And a day after we published that, Microsoft's blacklist, which included outlets like Town Hall and whole other ones, uh, they actually recanted their relationship with the Global Disinformation Index and are currently conducting an internal
1: investigation. Wow. Uh, This reminds me a little bit of the Southern Poverty Law Center, which is a giant grift that does some of the biggest virtue signaling in the world pretending that they are calling out hate groups but really they're the hate group and you know what what these people are doing the G- GDI people this is this is really disgusting and you would have to think that even honest liberals would not be okay with this and i'm wondering what kind of reaction you've had so far from people who are not necessarily, you know, the the everyday readers of Washington Examiner and American Spectator and so on.
7: We've seen our story even picked up in places like the New York Post, uh, Fox News, uh, and, and several other outlets on the right that obviously wield uh, immense influence. Uh, but similar to the Twitter files... Uh, We have not seen as much pickup. Actually, I I wouldn't say as much. We haven't seen pickup in left-leaning outlets, uh, not even really center-left. And certainly, you know, that's something that uh, there's a lack of clarity about because I I do think, honestly, that if an outlet like CNN, uh, if an outlet like, you know, the Daily Beast, which is a little more to the left, if these outlets were being blacklisted through ads and the government was funding it, I'm pretty confident I would write up that story because that, that seems like a major First Amendment issue regardless of political
1: ideology. So do, to what do you attribute, this is probably a, a very naive sounding question, but uh, you know, since you really do journalism every day, I, I want to, as insightful an answer as you can get, to, to what do you attribute the lack of interest by other outlets in what seems like it should be a major story about government malfeasance and whatever you describe G- GDI as? Mm-hmm.
7: Yeah, that's a great question. And, uh, you know, it's, it's tough for me to say, but I can say that I think that sometimes uh, right-leaning media, we pick up on certain stories and then I it, it does stay in the right-leaning kind of media uh, chamber. And I believe that uh, oftentimes, and this has happened before, left-leaning outlets, peddle the narrative that it's sort of like some vast conspiracy, you know, if Breitbart picks it up. It's somehow a conspiracy. And look, we've seen this time and time again. We saw, we've seen it with the Hunter Biden laptop story. We've seen it with, uh, the stories about, uh, that we rebuking the steel dossier, which the Hillary Clinton campaign fed to the FBI to mm-hmm. falsely link Donald Trump to Russia. Um, and so it's something we've seen more and more. I will say the more lawmakers get involved here, and we've been beginning to talk to more and more lawmakers about this story, and they're beginning to get, you know, for example, Mac Apes and Jim Jordan, two, uh, you know, powerful members of the House. They both uh, said they will be bound to investigate this, uh, the government funding through their weaponization committee in Congress. And so I will say the more lawmakers get involved, uh, you know, the, the more there's potential for this to, I believe, expand elsewhere because you, you can't not cover something if it's going to, you know, affect policy. So, but I guess you can not.
1: So we'll see. <laughs> right, uh, and you know, if I were you, I would, I would see if you could get, you know, either a Democrat to to get on board with those guys, or or a Republican who has a little more credibility with you know the so-called mainstream media i know they don't like republicans generally but nobody has less credibility with cnn than matt's matt gates matt does and jim jordan is only a little better so we need to get this story into the hands of some politicians who you know cnn will listen to
7: you know i i i've talked to the lawmakers who have expressed interest in this and um, i think it's great that you know jordan and gates and others are but i, I will say i i I see what you mean with regard to, you know, certainly, but this is a story we've tried to get on a lot of people's radars. And, yeah. Uh, it, Democrats, including Ro Khanna, I've emailed about this. Yeah. But in the end, the people the people thus far who have engaged with this story have been, uh, you know, Republican lawmakers. And, you know, certainly some of the more, of the more socially conservative ones.
1: But, you know, right. it is what it is. Right. And I think Ro is a great target. I think that's a, a really good one. I don't know if he'll do anything, but – and I don't know the guy – Uh, We're talking with Gabe Kaminsky. Yes, Kaminsky, with a Y on the end, Uh, investigative reporter at the Washington Examiner. That's washingtonexaminer.com. One quick thing before I let you go, Gabe, tell us a little bit about uh, this report that you guys did and the outcome of it about this uh, so-called charity called the Alliance for Global Justice.
7: Oh, sure thing. Um, so we've been covering an organization called Alliance for Global Justice, which is a charity in Arizona. And so that that organization uh, we found was fundraising for an orga- another charity that is linked to the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, which is a a terrorist group, a United States-designated terrorist group, a a group that's engaged in high-profile bombings and plane hijackings. And so we wrote up the story, the fact that this group was fundraising for a group linked to that and detailed other ways that they're linked to uh, the PFLP, the terrorist group. Um, uh, There was also an IRS complaint filed against that group following our story. And what we learned two days ago is that uh, Salsa Labs, a major uh, payment processor has cut off the ability for the charity in Arizona to fundraise through credit cards for itself or the 140 left-leaning, uh, terror, partially terror-linked groups that it sponsors, and so that you know this is a huge financial blow to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're not able to raise money online, uh, and so
1: yeah. <laughs> so. You know, this just occurred to me uh, as we're talking about this. There may be some people who are not thinking too deeply about it, but who hear the two different stories we just talked about, one being leftists trying to keep conservative media from being able to make money by selling ads, and you and I are unhappy about that. And then another story about, well, conservatives, I suppose, trying to keep this other group from making money, and we're happy about that one. And then some people who, you know, might not look any far farther below the surface might say that we're being hypocritical. Like we're pissed that one group is being prevented from making money and we're glad that the other group is being prevented from making money. So why don't you just take 47 seconds for, you know, in case there are any people not thinking deeply who are listening and explain the difference.
7: Sure thing. Um, I think, yeah, I think, I mean, I, I don't think that, I don't think that's really a sound argument just because, I mean, Alliance for Global Justice, as we detailed, is literally linked to terrorism. And I think there's a massive difference between uh, an organization that is trying to murder Jewish people (laughs) and an organization that is trying to defund uh, the free and independent press. That, that's pretty much
1: my response. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I, I think that's right, but I just want to get that out there on the record. Yeah. 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 Gabe, yeah. Gabe Kaminsky is an investigative reporter for the Washington examiner. Does a lot of great work um, probably cause he's named Kaminsky, WashingtonExaminer.com. <laughs> Gabe, thanks for doing this. We'll definitely, we'll definitely have you back. It's good to have a Kaminsky on the show.
7: Great chatting. Yeah.
1: Thanks man. Appreciate it. All right. So, You know, I'm just one quick follow up. It's not a big surprise that there's a left wing group that puts out a list that they claim are outlets putting out disinformation. By the way, all they mean by disinformation is stuff we don't agree with or stuff we don't want people to know. That's really what disinformation means in this context and it's, it's not that surprising that they would try that because there's lots of dishonest people everywhere. But what's really shocking here and what has to stop is our federal government State Department giving that group money. Now, as Gabe said, they give that group money ostensibly to help the group with their foreign operations because that's the kind of thing a State Department would do. But money is fungible. And if that group had you know, a million dollars and they were splitting it half in foreign operations and half in American operations. And then suddenly our government gives them $300,000 and says, well, this has to go to your foreign operations only, but then they can just take a different $300,000 and move it over to their domestic stuff. So for sure it is funding the suppression of free speech and the suppression of non-leftist media in America, and it has to stop. Absolutely has to stop. So we will see. We will see what happens with this story. I want to actually just take one more second here. I shared with you a few days ago a a really funny piece by a Spanish writer named Itxu Diaz. I-T-X-U-D-I-A-Z. And he wrote a piece, and I'm not going to share all of it with you, but he wrote a piece about this story, about Gabe Kaminsky's work on this group. And... I just want to share with you a paragraph and a half, because I think this is so good. And And again, by way of full disclosure, when I write, which I don't have much time for, but when I write, I write for American Spectator. And that is on the list of one of these organizations that the leftists are trying to prevent from being able to sell advertising. So here's what Ichu Diaz says. In any case, always committed to the woke cause, I want to cooperate with the GDI by adding a few points to their commentary on this magazine. They wrote, quote, In content published by the American Spectator, Bias, sensationalism, and divisive and targeting language were prevalent. Agreed. Bias? I have all the bias in the world against a project like GDI funded by the sinister George Soros. Sensationalism? Seriously? Seriously? This coming from the people who've been engaged in a daily war against a supposed climate apocalypse since the 1980s? Divisive and targeting language were prevalent. Of course, as a journalist, I seek to tell the truth to readers, so I spend a lot of my time separating idiots and non-idiots. Quote, while fact-based leads and well-measured headlines were rare, so this is what GDI said, that's not true. Usually, when I write, quote, Nasty progressive censors, 99% of the time, I mean nasty progressive censors. Quoting GDI again. On the contrary, most of the assessed articles on this domain negatively targeted a group or individual in their title or opening sentences. End quote. Of course, what do they expect? For us to talk about how beautiful Italian Renaissance painting is in order to tell you how Joe Biden is sinking the country economically, I wonder how we should then exercise our job as a counterweight to the government without making negative comments against the government. Maybe with irony. How about this? Joe Biden is the most enlightened mind in the history of American politics. His son, Hunter, is a teetotaler, Anthony Blinken did not know that the GDI he funds was an instrument of censorship against conservative media. He thought it was an NGO to end malaria worldwide. GDI, I look forward to your positive assessment of my efforts. So there you go. Again, not surprising that the far left would do this stuff. Slightly surprising, only slightly surprising, that our federal government would fund it. This stuff has to stop. Let me do one minute on a story that I've had for a couple of days and not had a chance to get to. One minute on a story I call It's Good to Be the King, as long as we're talking about Mel Brooks movies this week. This is from The V-E-R-G-E, dot com. Yes, Elon Musk created a special system for showing you all his tweets first. Apparently, Joe Biden sent out a tweet going into the Super Bowl about his wife supporting the Eagles And that got 29 million impressions, whatever that means, that tweet. Elon Musk also tweeted his support for the Eagles. And his tweet got 9 million versus Biden's getting 29 million. And according to this story, that really pissed off Elon Musk. And he went back to San Francisco and demanded answers from his team. And you may recall there was a point last week, or maybe it was the beginning of this week, when Twitter was down for a few hours... And apparently, part of the reason that Twitter was down was that he demanded that his engineering team put something in place that would make sure that essentially everybody sees Elon Musk's tweets, even if they weren't maybe his followers, and that his tweets got as much attention as possible. And when the engineers were trying to engineer that, it caused the whole system to go down because they were working so fast and they hadn't tested everything, and... Elon Musk was was pissed because he people weren't seeing his tweets as much as he thought they should be. I I don't know now how much his so they put in this artificial boost to Elon Musk's account, which was originally to boost his tweets a thousand times more than they otherwise would have been. We are told that a boost still remains in place for him, but that it is now less than a thousand. We just don't know how much less. That definitely falls into the category of, it's good to be the king.
2: With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.
3: Dearly
0: beloved, we are gathered here today to, has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time
1: I guess Dragon's going to make me talk about science right now uh, because he's reading ahead. Wait, before we do science, can we do some, uh, can we do a
3: Winter Park giveaway? Would that be fine with you? Well, I mean, it is the Ross Kaminsky show. I so know. I think you should probably get a say as to what happens everybody, occasionally. Everybody
1: around here knows who's really in charge, just like in the military. It's not actually the officer in charge. It's always the enlisted guys. It's the, it's the senior sergeant and so on. Like Dragon and A-Rod, who are in charge. So I just sit here and do what I'm told. All right.
3: How do you want to do this today, boss? We did phones last time. So let's go yeah. ahead and do text this time around. Okay. And why don't we
1: why don't we think of a question that we could do, actually? You think of a question while I tell, I know, I'm putting you on the spot. Well, I'm going to tell listeners right now what we're going to give away. All right. So this, so at some point. In a little bit, we're going to tell you what texter number you will have to be and at what time you can start texting. And you will have to be texter number something with the right answer to some question that we are going to figure out momentarily. What you will win is this. A pair of credentials including ski passes. So this is for two people. To Winter Park Resort. Good next Friday, Saturday, and Sunday during the 47th Annual Wells Fargo Ski Cup hosted by the National Sports Center for the Disabled. I will be doing my show from there, from the balcony house, 9 a.m. to noon next Friday. It is always my very favorite show of the year. The only time I've missed one since I started doing these things however many years ago was during COVID when they just didn't have it. Didn't And, and so this is what you're going to win, a pair of credentials with ski passes. This is a valuable prize, people. Lift tickets are expensive, and actually these lift tickets are good for all three days. So imagine what this prize is worth. I don't know, but it's worth a lot. It's worth a lot. And if you don't win, Mandy's going to have some to give away, and you can also buy them at nscd.org. Let me mention one other thing. I already had a listener take me up on this. If you're going to come up, whether or not you win this thing, if you're going to be there for the weekend, send me an email at ross at koadenver.com. R-O-S-S at koadenver.com. And let me know, and maybe we can, you know, do some snowboarding together, or you can ski and all board, and maybe we can grab a beer at some point. Uh, because I, I really do like getting together with listeners and hanging out and talking about life, the universe and everything. Do me one favor. If we do get together, I don't mind you asking me stuff about me. I would rather not spend much time talking about politics. Uh, really, I, I just, I, I talk about it a lot and I, I like politics. But on the weekends, I just like to get away from it a little bit. So I'd be happy to talk with you about anything else. You know, deep philosophy, sports, music, economics radio but just let's not talk too much politics but get in touch if you're going to be there and i'd love to try to get together with some folks and hang out so what have you come up with boss
3: all right so since it is friday and Mm -hmm. we do name that tune on friday okay i want the listeners to give me two of the last three name that tune songs that we have done that's impossible i couldn't do it that wow. you you I was gonna go easy on them but you said this is a very valuable prize lift tickets are expensive so we're gonna go a little Oop. hard two of the last three name that tune song
1: seriously I couldn't win these tickets I could not answer that question I don't think and you played you were actually I, here with I probably could because I can name one that I did and right. I can name one that you did see there you go so I could I could name them two of the
3: last three huh Two of the last three do you want to make it a little easier two of the last three four four sure two okay all right fine fine two of the last four two of the last four
1: okay as i speak it's 10 38 but we want to make sure that people on the stream have the chance to participate so at 10 42 on dragon's clock not your clock at 10 42 you should be texter number three three naming two of the last four songs we have done on friday's name that tune text at five text 56690 name two of the last four songs the third person to get that right will win this stuff pretty cool huge prize huge I, I, this prize probably worth $1000 i'm not kidding it's probably least, probably yeah. worth $1000 or or more given what lift tickets are are going for these days and that would be even if you ascribe a negative value to getting together with me which i would by the way like okay, I would pay a thousand dollars for this thing, or nine hundred dollars if it includes beer with Ross. <laughs> so so all right, that'll be that'll be a lot of fun. All right, Dragon is making me talk about science because he played that sciency music. So let's talk about this. Is kind of an interesting thing. This is not the the nerdiest science. This is science that could actually have some implications for ordinary people's daily lives. Perhaps a new study is showing that they may have successfully created a birth control pill for men that is fast-acting. So, like, within half an hour to an hour of taking this pill... Now, this is not out on the market yet, all right? This is still being developed. But theoretically, within half an hour to an hour of taking this pill, a, a guy could you know, engage in a certain activity that, uh, if not careful, could result in pregnancy, assuming you are in a situation where you don't want a pregnancy to result. Sometimes with this particular action, you are intending for a pregnancy to result, a couple looking to have a child. But if you are not intending for a pregnancy to result, then you might be a little upset if one does. And this could really kind of change people's lives in the sense that, when it came to medical interventions, pharmaceutical interventions on this particular thing, everything has been on the woman's side, right? Birth control pill, morning after pill, the other stuff that they call the abortion pill or whatever. I'm not looking to get into a debate about it. I'm just saying this has all been on the woman's side. There are physical barriers, of course, that either a, a man can put on or a, or a woman can, can have, you know, implanted or whatever, but... This kind of thing, if it really works, I I think could be a a game changer. And let me share this story with you a little bit. In 2018, a doctor named Melanie uh, Balbach was researching a protein called soluble adenyl cyclase, or SAC, for an eye condition. E-Y-E, not eye. For an eye condition. And when the drug was given to mice... The doctor noted, and I'll, I'll I'll quote from another doctor who was involved in the study, she, meaning Dr. Ballback, showed the movie of the mice sperm not moving, just twitching after the mice having been given this uh, this chemical that, again, they were looking at for something else. And this doc said, oh, my gosh, that's a holy grail. That's a male contraceptive. So right now they're calling this thing, uh, TDI-11861, when it was given to male mice, 52 different mating attempts with the opposite sex failed to result in a single pregnancy, whereas given to a group of mice that did not have the treatment, one-third of those interactions between the male and female mice resulted in pregnancy. So... They also noted that the sperm became immobile for up to two and a half hours, uh, both inside and outside of the female reproductive tract before starting to move normally at about three hours. And within 24 hours, they were entirely back to normal. So there you go. There's some cool science. I don't know if and when it'll actually make it to the market for humans, but if it does, I think it would be an awesome, awesome thing. When we come back, A senator checks himself into a hospital in a situation that could massively change politics in the United States of America.
0: 18 plus.
1: All right, before we talk politics, I, uh, I I did suggest to producer Dragon going into this giveaway that his question about naming previous name that tune songs was going to be a little difficult, and we got some people who texted in having gotten one of the last four Name That Tune songs that we've done, but nobody got two of them. So I am going to ask you another question to do this giveaway. And by the way, if you missed it, this is going to be a giveaway for a pair of credentials with lift tickets for next Friday, Saturday, and Sunday for Winter Park, for the National Sports Center for the disabled 47th annual Wells Fargo ski cup before I tell you the question, uh, Dragon, can you just tell us what were the last four, name that tune songs that we did?
3: We got Jefferson Airplane, White Rabbit, Cream's White Room, Rick Astley, Never Gonna Give You Up, and Paul McCartney and Wings, Live and Let Die. Those were the last four. Those were the last four. Okay. Frankly, I'm sorry. I've got a small vent. Yeah. I'm slightly disappointed in the listeners because- we did a question not long ago for for another, for a different prize uh-huh. about your first date on air here on KOA, your first full show, yeah. And who was your first guest? Yeah, they got it. They got it easily. Yeah, but that seems harder. Something from two weeks ago. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, come on. All right, all I'm right. A little disappointed. Okay, a little disappointed. All
1: right. So here's what we're gonna do now. We're gonna stick with the third person to text, and we're gonna make the time for the the text. We're gonna make it, uh, let's say. and and this is a question to reward people who were listening yesterday, so you don't have to necessarily know weeks of name that tune. The fourth, did I say the fourth person? Okay, the fourth person, let's do the fourth person to correctly text, and you will know the answer if you were listening yesterday. Why does shooting bullets at that big Chinese spy balloon, why would shooting bullets at it not have caused it to come down to the ground. Why did we have to use a missile? If you were listening yesterday, you know the answer to that. Why not bullets? Why a missile to take down these balloons? We had General Dave Deptula on the show, three-star retired Air Force general, and he explained it. So the fourth person to explain, you don't have to be perfect, the fourth person to explain more or less accurately why we had to use a missile and not bullets to take that down will win this fantastic thing, credentials whiskey passes for Winter Park Resort, next Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. It's good all three days. Pretty crazy, huh? Pretty freaking crazy. All right, I want to just share this one story with you. It's a very important story. So you will recall in the Pennsylvania Senate race— Last November, which was one of the handful of Senate races that people around the country were paying attention to where it was thought that a Republican had a chance. But where Republican primary voters unfortunately followed the guidance of Donald Trump and nominated a very, very bad candidate and that candidate, Dr. Oz, ended up losing to a guy who has absolutely no business being a senator. Uh, John Fetterman is a lunatic leftist, every bit as far left as Bernie Sanders, and the guy truly has no business representing a centrist state like Pennsylvania. But Dr. Oz was a terrible candidate, and John Fetterman, who literally couldn't even talk because he had a stroke, nevertheless won the election. Now, John Fetterman checked himself into Walter Reed Hospital. It used to be called Walter Reed Army Medical Center, but now they merged the Army and the Navy Hospital, and they call what used to be the Navy Hospital Walter Reed, which pisses me off because my parents both used to work at that hospital when it was the Navy Hospital in Bethesda, Maryland. So anyway, Fetterman met with Congress's doctor, Congress's doctor said you are dealing with severe depression I recommend inpatient treatment you should check into the hospital and Fetterman did and good for him it's a it's it's an important thing to take these things very very seriously. I'm not being sarcastic here at all not at all. This is very very serious stuff and it is good that it was recognized by Fetterman by the doctor that it is serious enough for him that he must. Get help. This is not usually the kind of thing that you get over quickly. Deep, deep depression can be years long or lifelong. Fetterman has a heart condition that can be associated with depression. It would not surprise me if John Fetterman has to resign from the Senate. I think he will resist it, and I would too if I were he. But it would not surprise me if he has to resign. And for the record, number one, I hope he resigns. Number two, I hope he is okay. I do not wish bad things on this man. But I hope he resigns and goes to take care of himself. And this is the one thing I wanted to mention to you. Here's how this would work if he resigns. The governor of Pennsylvania, who is a Democrat, because Republicans in Pennsylvania nominated a true lunatic to be governor of that state, he lost the, the Republican nominee for governor lost by 15 or 20 points. He was just a complete disaster. But the Democrat who won, who's not super leftist, by the way, he's fairly moderate for a Democrat, will appoint, if Federman resigns, will appoint a replacement, but that replacement is only in place until the next general election in the state, and that would be November of next year. And so if Federman resigns sometime soon, soon-ish, That seat will be up for election again in November of next year, and it is possible that Republicans could win that seat, especially if Donald Trump is not involved in the race. I wanted you to be aware of that. We'll take a quick break. We'll be right back on KOA.
0: well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I think it's time to party. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Thank God it's Friday! It's Friday
0: night. I want to be, want to be a Friday night. I don't care about you. It's Friday. I'm in
3: love. No, it's Friday and it's Ross Kaminsky on KOA, 850 AM, 94 FM, and on iHeartRadio. Everybody's working for the weekend. Everybody's
0: All right, uh, here we
1: are. It's Friday. I'm Ross. I'm going down to the leadership program of the Rockies annual retreat. I am very excited about it. I went to the, the first one of these I went to was in 2005. And I have never missed one. It's every year, usually February, sometimes March. I have never missed one since I went to the first one in 2005. The keynote speaker for dinner tonight is Martha McCallum of Fox News. The keynote speaker for lunch tomorrow is Kim Strassel of the Wall Street Journal. Gosh, I'm excited to go. I would like to actually take a moment to react to what I just heard in the news broadcast there. There. With Chris Hansen and Lisa Calderon, these are the audio clips that our Intrepid News team just played, talking about rent control. Chris Hansen is right. Rent control is, it, it's not just one of the dumbest economic policies you could impose as a city. It is proven over and over and over again to fail. Rent control always does what Chris Hansen said. It essentially puts a dead stop on construction of rental property in a city and, and thus reduces what otherwise would be the supply of housing available. It is It is also, of course, a theft of property rights, right? If you own a thing, then I should be able to charge whatever the market will bear for the thing. And if I say I want to rent you this thing for for $1,500 a month, and it could be an apartment, it could be something else, right? But if I want to rent you this thing for $1,500 a month, you're free to say no. And then if you do rent it for $1,500 a month, I should be free later on to say, you know what, things have changed and I need $1,700 a month and then you should be free to say no. But what if there's only some of these things and you want me to build more? But now you're going to tell me that no matter what happens, I'm not going to be able to raise it above $1,500 or $1,500 plus inflation for that year, you know, so I'll get to $1,520. I just won't build them. And, again, this isn't a theoretical thing. This is what's so frustrating about people like Lisa Calderon. And when you heard her comments in that news broadcast, uh, our our KOA news broadcast there, you heard her comments. Well, it's not just rent control on its own. It's rent control in the context of all this other socialist nonsense. You know, like government funding lawyers for people who are getting evicted and and stuff like that. Lisa Calderon and people like her live on Big Rock Candy Mountain where the energy that comes out of your outlets is powered by unicorn farts. That's where these people's brains are. They are so out of touch with reality. But voters in Denver do elect people like her. So I have no idea. I'm not, I, I, you know. Given what Lisa Calderon said, just in that clip, you don't need to know anything else. Just in that clip, based on her complete disconnect from economic reality, given that it's been proven over and over and over and over again that rent control has very bad effects, she must be, in your mind, disqualified from being one of your choices. You must not vote for Lisa Calderon. I would note, for those of you who wonder about this, go look at... What's that city next to Minneapolis? St. Paul. Go look at St. Paul, Minnesota. They passed a rent control bill three years ago? Something very recently. And within almost no time at all, the city council had to come back and gut it and remove almost all of it because all the apartment construction stopped. The other thing that'll happen is people will turn apartments into condos. And then... There are, a lot of, there are a lot of folks who either don't want to buy a place or can't afford a down payment. Maybe you're a younger person and you haven't saved up fifty dollars or $100,000 for a down payment. So you're renting for a while, or maybe you think you're going to rent for a while, but you're going to get married, and then you're going to go buy a house in the suburbs, so you just want to rent for right now. Well, if the landlord can't raise the rent to where there's a return that the landlord thinks is fair, he'll convert it to a condo, and then he'll say to you, all right, well, you can either... Buy it or get the hell out. So how's that rent control working for you now? Anyway, go take a look, actually, if you're interested in this issue. Go take a look at St. Paul, Minnesota rent control. Because this just happened in the past few years. So there you go. Dragon, what was the name of the person who won the lift tickets? Our good friend Pete. Very, very well done, and thanks. We had close to fifty people respond to. Don't worry, Dragon. I'm not rubbing it in. We had close. It sure feels like it. We had fifty. I know you're just paranoid. We had fifty people respond to the question, which fifty is an awesome my name's number.
3: Ross and this is my show, and people got my question and not yours.
1: <laughs> I think it may have been Winston Churchill who said. Paranoids have enemies too. Uh, (laughs) Or alternatively, Dragon, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they aren't out to get you. I'm
3: not mad at the listeners. Yeah.
1: I'm just disappointed. Right. 50 people um, who listened closely enough yesterday that we asked a question that you had to be listening yesterday to get the answer— And the question was, why do you have to use a missile rather than bullets to take down one of those giant helium balloons, at least according to our guest yesterday? And the answer is that in those giant balloons, the pressure of the helium gas inside the balloon is very similar to the pressure of the air outside the balloon. So popping a hole in the balloon is not like popping a hole in a kid's balloon that's very highly pressurized inside. So when you pop it, it explodes. When you put holes in one of those helium balloons, the the helium basically stays inside the balloon. It just comes out of these bullet holes very slowly over time. And the balloon might not come down for a week or a month or something. And, And he shared the story That I had actually shared with him of a very large Canadian weather balloon that kind of got out of its intended flight path and was escaping. And the Canadian Air Force went up and shot this thing with a thousand rounds of ammunition and it didn't come down or it wasn't going to come down for weeks. Right. And so that was the answer. So there you there you go. Ross, you can't just keep raising rents. People can't afford to live here anymore. Here's uh, another one. Is this the same? Yeah, this is the same person sending another text, but I'll I'll read it. Landlords didn't just raise the rent a hundred dollars. They price average people out of a home. Then they land a place in the car or on the street. We're turning into San Francisco. Okay. So I get that. I get that. In fact, this is a conversation that's worth having. Let's have it for a minute. Let's have it for a minute. People like Lisa Calderon and perhaps like this listener, I don't want to characterize this listener. People like Lisa Calderon believe that you can solve this legitimate problem that this listener is pointing out. It is a real problem. In fact, I have been on the show. I own a home. And the fact that real estate prices have gone up a lot is benefiting me personally And I have said on the show, I wish real estate prices in the Denver metro area were not going up this much. I like the idea. Not only do I like it, it's critically important that more people over time can become homeowners. Now, I'm not talking about this thing that politicians talk about so often. Let's make everybody a homeowner and make interest rates zero. And let's make sure you have to give everyone a loan, even if their credit is bad and all this stuff. That's not what I'm talking about. But in the big picture, generally, someone is going to be better off financially in retirement if they owned a home than if they rented. Because over that time, they're building up equity in the place that they own. Whereas if you are a renter, you are building up the landlord's equity in the thing that he owns. Okay, so this is a legitimate problem. It's also a legitimate problem if you've got low to moderate income workers in an area who cannot afford to live anywhere near work. And then they've got to live much further away from work. And that's bad for them. Right, Lots of traveling, lots of expense traveling, lots of time away from their wives and kids, so it's bad for them, but it's also bad for the employers because it's hard to keep that employee because the employee doesn't love the long commute and the employee doesn't love being away from kids for that long, and the employee really uh, doesn't love you know having to spend that much money on gasoline if they're driving, and so then the employer has to give a raise, and in a sense, the employer ends up covering some of the fact that nearby real estate is expensive because you're subsidizing the transportation for some but you have to if you want them to get to work. So, this is a legitimate argument. My point is that my point is that you cannot solve a problem that is caused by lack of supply. By artificially limiting price. Because artificially limiting price, all it will do is actually worsen the supply problem. And that is the key. That is the key. This person says, I'm doubtful they could use bullets at 60,000 feet. Why would you be doubtful of that? There there aren't a ton of airplanes that can get up that high, but Dave Deptula said the F-22 can. So, sure, you could. Why not? You could do that. So, Ross, I didn't understand the bullet hole argument. My understanding is the missile didn't have a warhead on it, meaning it just put a bigger hole in and out. Is that wrong? Well, when I saw the video, it looked like a much, much, much bigger hole, and I, I, I don't think it was just a hole. I think it did something that really seriously tore up the balloon, but I don't know exactly the mechanism of that. All right, so back to the rent control thing. There are... All right, let me I'm, I'm trying to remember the exact wording of the Yogi Berra thing. Okay, here's one of my one of my favorite yogi berra isms. In theory, there's no difference between theory and practice, but in practice there is. Isn't that a great one? And I'm using that one wrongly in this situation, because in this situation. Theory and practice come out exactly the same way. The theory predicts that rent control should reduce the supply of housing in an area and in the long run make the problems for renters worse, not better. And the practice, the lived experience of rent control proves that that is true. So who benefits from rent control? There's one group of people who benefit from rent control. The people who are already renting because new people who are trying to rent are probably not going to get a place because there aren't going to be more. So the people, and this is what happens in New York City, by the way, it's very, very famously has rent control. And what happens is people move in, they stay there, and then they never leave. So the people who are already in a place stay in the place. You don't get a lot more vacancy And so new people moving to Denver, looking for an apartment to rent, can't find a place to rent because nobody's building new apartments because of the rent control laws. So all the new young people who are moving here to start lives in Colorado, get a job and all that, don't go there. Now, what we're talking about at the moment are Denver candidates for mayor. And Denver's stupid enough to do this, right? Because Denver voters are stupid enough to vote for Tay Anderson and Candice DeBaca. Denver voters have proven that they are out of their minds and that they're trying to turn the city into Portland. This coming election for mayor is their opportunity to prove me wrong. Make sure you don't vote for Lisa Calderon or anyone like her. Make sure that you don't vote for Leslie Herod who declined the opportunity to come on this show. Anybody who doesn't have the courage to come on this show, where everybody knows I am exceedingly fair to Democrats and Republicans alike, and I've had a whole bunch of Democratic candidates for mayor on because every candidate for mayor except one is a Democrat, and I've had five of them or something. Leslie Harrod said, no, we don't want to be on your show. So there's a person who's afraid to speak to you, who's afraid to answer a question in front of you, do not vote for Leslie Herod. Do not vote for Lisa Calderon. Do not vote for anyone who supports rent control because they're morons. But in any case, here's the upside of this story. If Denver does rent control, Colorado Springs and Aurora and Fort Collins are going to do great. Because that's where people will be able to move because that's where there will be new apartments. There are... Anyway, I, I, I've said enough on that. i said enough on that. Let me do a couple other things here real quick because in the next segment of the show, we're going to have a ridiculous conversation with Steve Shippy about haunted, haunted houses and his, his new special called Michigan Hell House. I'll do two things quickly. First, yesterday, Joe Biden gave this press conference that you heard early in Mandy's show here on KOA. And one of the things that he said, he was talking about shooting down the Chinese spy balloon and then the other things. And he said, I make no apologies for taking down the balloon. And I thought I thought that was a really weird statement. In fact, I'm just going to do one thing, not two, because I want to do one real nerdy thing with you that relates to this story. I thought that's quite the red herring, isn't it? saying that I make no apologies for shooting down the balloon, nobody is asking you to make an apology for that. You can tell what they're afraid of when they say something like that. He's afraid of being called indecisive. And in fact, earlier in the day, previewing the Biden press conference, diversity hire Karine Jean-Pierre, who's the press secretary, said... He's going to discuss his discu- decisive action in dealing with the balloon. That, right, the decisive action that let it traverse the entire United States of America. That's how decisive he was. Although to give Biden a little bit of credit, apparently he wanted to shoot it down at the beginning. Being decisive would have been telling the, his advisors who were saying don't shoot it down. Being decisive would have been, okay, I've heard you, understand all your arguments, go shoot it down now. That would have been decisive. You can tell what they're afraid of when they bring up these red herrings like, I'm not going to make any apologies for shooting it down. Dude, nobody was asking you to. And when I was thinking about this yesterday, I thought red herring. That's a cool term, red herring. Let me go to mentalfloss.com. Agatha Christie's murder mystery, and then there were none, directly mentions Red Herring in reference to a character's death. And a statue of a Red Herring appears in Lemony Snicket's A Series of Unfortunate Events. A character in the cartoon, a pup named Scooby-Doo, who was constantly being blamed for myriad crimes, was named, you guessed it, Red Herring. Well, where does this come from? Herring are a kind of fish. They're naturally silver, but they turn reddish-brown when they're smoked. Long before refrigerators were invented, this was done to preserve the fish for months at a time. They can also be pretty smelly. As one particular blog points out, it was believed that red herring were dragged against the ground to help train hounds to sniff out prey in the 17th century. Another theory was that escaped prisoners used the fish to cover their tracks and confuse the dogs that tailed them. However, the blog notes that red herring were were actually used to train horses rather than dogs, and only if the preferred choice, a dead cat, wasn't available. The idea was that the horses would get used to following the scent trail, smelling the herring, which would in turn make them less likely to get while following the hounds amid the noise and bustle of a fox hunt. The actual origin of the figurative sense of the phrase can be traced back to the early 1800s. Around this time, English journalist William Cobbett wrote a presumably fictional story about how he had used red herring as a boy to throw hounds off the scent of a hare. He elaborated on the anecdote and used it to criticize some of his fellow journalists. Quote, he used the story as a metaphor to decry the press, which had allowed itself to be misled by false information about a supposed defeat of Napoleon, this was written in another blog, this caused them to take their attention off of important domestic matters. An extended version of the story was printed in 1833, and the idiom spread from from there. Many people are more familiar with red herrings in pop culture. They also crop up in political spheres and debates of all kinds. Robert Gula, author of Nonsense, Red Herring, Straw Men, and Sacred Cows, How We Abuse Logic in Our Everyday Language, defines a red herring as a detail or remark inserted into a discussion, either intentionally or unintentionally, that sidetracks the discussion, end quote. The goal is to distract the listener or opponent from the original topic, and it's considered a type of flawed reasoning or, more fancifully, a logical Fallacy. Well, that is exactly what Joe Biden gave us yesterday when he said, I make no apologies for taking down the balloon, a stinky red herring indeed.
8: even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life.
0: No purchase necessary. BDW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. All
1: right. Good morning. I'm Ross. Thanks for being here. I'm going to have a an excellent weekend down at the down at the leadership program at Rocky's annual retreat actually uh, my my friend Mandy is going to do the very last segment on my show for me so I can so I can get on my way which I appreciate. Now Mandy, I'm going to ask you to part, participate here because uh, Steve Shippey is, is joining the show and I, I've had Steve on the show quite a few times before and he is always doing some kind of uh, you know paranormal TV special and his new one is called Shock Docs Michigan Hell House and this premieres on this, this Sunday at 7pm our time on the Travel Channel and it's going to be streaming on Discovery Plus as well and uh, Steve, first of all Steve hi and it's good to talk to you again that, how you doing? Yeah, really good. And I've got my friend and colleague Mandy Connell here. Who uh, have you talked to Steve before? By the I way,
6: not. I'm looking forward to hearing what Steve has to say.
1: Well, I want you to participate a little bit because I have a feeling. I, I don't know. I've never asked you about this, Mandy, but do you believe in paranormal
6: stuff? Uh, yeah. Yeah, that's what I thought for sure.
1: Yeah. Okay. So that that's why that's why I wanted you here. So. Let's since Steve is Steve is the guest. Steve, why don't you just tell us a little bit about what Michigan Hell House is about? And I'm very interested in the stuff that I read, where where you're talking about this as one of the best documented and and sort of most horrific kinds of hauntings.
9: Yeah, absolutely. Well, the Michigan Hell House uh, story began in 1974 in the rural farming community of Merrill, Michigan. Uh, the Pomerening family had built their house back in '51. Uh, lived in the house for around 20 years, no problems, no incidents whatsoever, you know, whatsoever, peaceful life. One night that all changes. They're asleep. They hear the sound of breaking glass. They go out to the living room and see that the large picture window on the front of the house had been completely blown in. Uh, They call the police department. They come out, they uh, take a report. They thought maybe it was some local vandals, whatnot. Police leave. The very next night at the same time, the family is woken up to pounding on the side of their house. They go outside. They don't see anybody. They walk back in. The pounding starts again, but this time as if multiple people are doing it all around their house. They run outside. Again, nothing is there. They call the police. And from that day forward and every day for a year, the police were called out to that house, uh, sometimes even 15 times in one night as the activity increased is any of this like recorded in audio video anything it it was actually with audio so to to give you the progression it, it goes from you know broken window to knocking and pounding to voices in the house threatening to kill the family to what is referred to as a series of explosions that lasted for months all documented uh, witnessed by police witnessed by first responders and then ultimately when the police realized that This wasn't uh, a a hoax, a prank. It wasn't a human-caused activity. They resorted to bringing out a parapsychology team from Duke University, and when they came out, they were running audio and recording devices 24-7 for a week. And during that time, there were three fires that took place, um, all of this being captured on audio as well as the pounding explosions, et cetera.
1: Wow. All right, Mandy, you jump in.
6: How in the world have we not heard this story before? I mean, this sounds outrageous. This is a little Amityville horror meets poltergeist.
9: It is. And in fact, everything I just said, honestly, is a drop in the bucket uh, because we skipped over some major details. That's how many things took place. Now, the reason why people didn't know about it is for the longest time, the police were suppressing this information because they believed this was a criminal investigation. You know, these are very uh, fact driven people. So when they're out there and they're seeing and hearing these things, they're not going to hang their hat on it being something paranormal. They thought, okay, well, we know it's happening, we're seeing it, we're experiencing it, so it has to be something logical. Um, is the family doing this? Is this some kind of a, an elaborate hoax? Uh, they surveilled them. There was even stakeouts that was, that was done. Uh, even at one point, uh, they were out there doing a stakeout. Uh, they had the chief of police sitting there with the family. The family thought it was only him that came over to, to talk with them while they were all watching the house. And sure enough, the pounding begins. Now the captain gets on his radio and he says, okay, it's happening. Close in, close in. Uh, They're watching the house all the way around. They don't hear anything. They don't see anybody. But yet when the captain is yelling through the walkie-talkie, they're actually hearing the pounding.
1: Unbelievable. We're talking with Steve Shippey, his newest uh, special, Shock Ducks, Michigan Hell House Premieres this Sunday, the nineteenth at seven p.m. Mountain Time. It'll be streaming on Discovery Plus as well. So, Steve, the last uh, at least two or three that I've talked to you about, you are working with Cindy Kaza. I think I pronounced her last name right. And yes. it, so she's she's a psychic, and you know you bring her into these places to. You're doing more like measuring devices and that sort of thing. She's doing what psychics do. What was Cindy Kay's reaction to being in this place?
9: You know, it seemed to really affect her um, multiple different times. You know, she was very overwhelmed uh, by all the things that were coming towards her, uh, what she was seeing, what she was feeling, uh, what she was picking up on could possibly be the source of you know the catalyst of all this activity. Um, it was super super intense. Well, wow. what do you think, Mandy?
6: I I have to ask, like, when did the family realize that this was not an act of vandalism and and at that point like why not just vacate get the hell out until you can figure out bringing a sage stick i don't know how you get rid of people uh ghosts in your house but when did they realize that this is not this is not human
9: well you know honestly it it took a few months uh, or several months honestly before they realized what what was really happening they you know they they didn't want to believe in anything like that they were uh very stout, very religious people. Uh, They thought for sure somebody was messing with them. Uh, They would do stakeouts of their own, if you will. They'd hide out in the cornfield at night and watch the house and uh, sit out there for hours till 4 or 5 in the morning, come back home as soon as they walked in, boom, it picks up again. And they just thought it was uh, something very clever or organized to harass them. But after a while, when the disembodied voices started and things started to levitate in their house and objects were moving on their own, It was at that point they realized that it it wasn't a human phenomenon. And uh, when you ask why they didn't leave, it's a very good question. Of course, you know, they've been asked that many times. But, you know, the father, he was given that land to build that house on by his father, uh, who owned that land, and and it had been in the family's name for around 140 years. And uh, he just felt that um, he wasn't going to be driven from his house and that his faith and and his religion and whatnot was uh, strong enough that he refused to leave and he was going to fight.
1: Steve, was there ever a name put on what this was? And I don't mean Bob or Ross or Mandy, <laughs> right? But I mean, was it a, a poltergeist? Was it a demon? Was it Satan? Was it witchcraft? What, what was
9: it? Okay, well, so the experts that came out from Duke University uh, to study the phenomenon, their consensus was they believed it was a, uh, a true poltergeist manifestation in fact the most prolific that they had ever seen uh because typically a poltergeist um will only happen for around a week at the most but you know usually a few days of uh of loud calamity and outburst of energy but now see the family and the locals they truly believed it was something more sinister they thought it was uh dark arts uh witchcraft a curse that was placed on the family by somebody that lived very close to them that had a grievance with the family wow
1: Steve Shippy's new special, "Shock Docs: Michigan Hell House," premieres this Sunday, 7 p.m. Mountain Time on the Travel Channel. It'll also be streaming on Discovery Plus. Thanks so much for being here, Steve. Uh, really appreciate it, and I'll. Make sure you get on Mandy's show in the future because she's just sitting here like mouth agape, like
6: gobsmacked. I, I, you know, I love <laughs> all this stuff. I'll be watching, Steve. That's, you got me. Okay, you got me. You won me. You won me over.
1: <laughs> okay, good. Thanks for being here, Steve. Appreciate it. Okay, thank you. All right, so we're gonna hit a break. When we come back, Mandy's gonna take over for me for the uh, the last few minutes of the show. Thank you for doing that.
6: I um I am going to be doing my Ross Kaminsky impression, so I will be losing at mm-hmm. name that tune.
1: Hmm. I- I've already that's heard my official it. story, you know. Yeah, that that's it, and I'm 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 struggling with it. I think I I think I know the band name, and I'm struggling with the song name, but. Uh, You can stick around and play Name That Tune with Mandy and Dragon. We'll be right back on KOA. Okay, round two. Name something that's not
2: boring.
3: Laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh?
2: Ah, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino.
6: I am going to play Ross Kaminsky's game. I am Mandy Connell in for 10 minutes for the departing Ross Kaminsky. You know, Dragon, I don't know. Did you know I used to be a trader? Yeah. (laughs) Lots and lots of football pencils in the fourth grade. I was a big trader of football pencils in the fourth grade.
3: Waving (laughs) your hands and yelling?
6: Correct. You had to get attention. Nobody wanted the Cowboys pencils. You had to do something. You could just stand there and get rid of those. Lots of hand-waving for those. Uh, I I did that just for Dragon, just to make Dragon laugh.
9: I'm
3: I'm sure I'm not the only one. I'm sure I'm not the only one.
6: I say that with so much love. Uh, Okay, so I told Ross I want to play his game that he loses every single week, and we're going to do Name That Tune. If you're not familiar uh, with the game that Ross loses every single week, it works like this: Dragon has taken a snippet of a song. How many seconds? I don't know the breakdown of the seconds. So the Just, first,
3: you know, to what we think that you should be able reasonable, to reasonable, but short, yeah. short,
6: short, but reasonable. um, and the song has to be in the night from the 1900s on radio that you would have heard of if you lived with Ross. So that is <laughs> those are the Pretty parameters, close, yeah. yeah, of this game. But I am ready. So let's go ahead now. Wait a minute. I don't have okay. I don't have anything open in front of me, so I can't get to the uh, the and, text line.
3: And I, I will say that that somebody gave me a great suggestion yeah. earlier in the week, and I would, had planned on running with that,
6: but oh, that would have been hilarious.
3: But <laughs> come last night, <laughs> at, you know, eight thirty. Ross texts me and goes, "Hey." Mandy's going to do name that tune. I'm like <laughs> Oh. No. Oh. Well, let's okay. keep
6: that other one under your hat cuz yes. that is a good one. Yes. Okay.
3: All right, so this is today's current Okay. name that tune.
6: My immediate thought is everybody's working for the weekend by Loverboy.
3: That's a good thought.
6: Play it again. I feel like that like the guitar lick's going to come in next. I'm, I, I think that's
3: it. Is that it? Do you, do you want the longer version? Yeah, you, please. Is that your yeah. final, that's your final that's answer? That's my then. final answer. Okay. All right. The next longest one.
6: Okay. Oh, oh no. It uh, is. Uh,
3: uh, 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 dana.
6: Golly, I can hear the beginning of that song in my head. It's hard to keep a radio show going while you're trying to think of how a song goes exactly. in your head. Maybe this uh-huh. is the problem for us. Cause right, cause, will, yeah. Because
3: you're you're great at it until you've got a cover. Yeah. Pressure's on. Dang it. I now all say, I can
6: think of is working for the weekend now. That's that's I, all I stuck did in my play head. The,
3: the shorter version for Ross yeah. earlier, he got the the artist. He did not get the name of the song, but he got the artist. Play it one more time.
6: Band. Slightly longer. I know this song do you do you, I, I mean i absolutely know this song I, and i cannot remember what it is that's I, so frustrating
3: i did make a slightly longer one <laughs> okay. would you like that one too <laughs> yeah, sure let's sure. Okay. go All for right. it All right.
6: it is nazareth son of a bitch that's that's it is that it no not nazareth no, no it's i don't know I have no idea. Now I know why Ross loses this every single week.
3: All right, well, we'll go to the text line because uh, 90-something percent (laughs) have gotten it right. (laughs) There there is one guy or or gal who did say, (laughs) you know, working for the weekend, but everybody else Uh has said Mississippi Queen.
6: Oh, yes, that is it. Chuck's yelling at me right now. If you listen to it, he's definitely yelling at me for sure. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah
3: try and brag a little bit for our good buddy A-Rod standing next to me He he got it he got it right
6: nice yeah see but that that song was not played in high rotation on the rock stations that I listened to so therefore that was a bad entry I'm just going to call I mean, it I like I see I, it.
3: I could be wrong, but I think it made it like 12 on the Billboard chart. <laughs> Whatever. So. We
6: didn't play that where I was from, yeah, okay? Exactly. We only played Leonard Skinnerd. We didn't play that. <laughs> <To> who? <laughs> her. So I guess I owe Ross an apology now because it is harder when you realize you can't just sit here for 45 seconds with dead air, right? Right. You're like, wow, yeah. I, I kind of have a responsibility to do a radio show, so I will not give him nearly as much crap <laughs> as I've been giving him. <laughs> So Ross, I know he's listening right now and he's waving his fist. Ha-ha! Uh, huzzah! That's what he's doing right now in his car. Okay, uh, since my show is next, so I'm gonna go ahead and wrap up this show and then I'll start the next show right after Nia Bender does our news right over there. So in the meantime, while you're saying goodbye to me and waiting for me, just listen to Nia. It's, it's gonna be a great day. Keep it right here on KOA.
2: Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring.